Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter, with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Morning, Grace Church. My name is John, and I am one of the elders here, and I have the honor of preaching while Pastor Dave is on vacation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a firm foundation that directs us in your ways, directs us in the path of life. And so I pray this morning as I preach from your word that your spirit would work in the hearts of all who hear, encourage and edify and build up, advance your kingdom, make your name great among the nations. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Last Sunday, while preaching from John chapter 8, Pastor Dave helped us to see that the freedom that Jesus, the Son of God, freely offers to all 
is something that the Jews of his time had rejected. The freedom that Jesus offered was not a kind of worldly freedom, but freedom from the slavery of sin. As Pastor Dave said last week, true freedom is not the ability to make our own choice unhindered by anything outside of us. True freedom instead is the God-given ability to rightly choose that which is best. This is something that the Jews Jesus was teaching did not understand. They had failed to rightly reckon with their history as God's covenant people. Without any self-awareness, they told Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Though they were ethnically part of the people of God, they were children of the devil and instead covenanted with him. Jesus tells them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. As much of the New Testament teaches, faith is not biological. It is not ethnic. It is spiritual. That is to say, those who love, obey, and follow Jesus are children of Abraham. And as the prologue to John's gospel says so clearly, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I had planned to preach from Exodus 1 long ago, but this portion of John's gospel is a providentially good time to reflect on the book of Exodus. The Jews of Jesus' day had misunderstood their own history. They failed to understand the significance of their exodus from Egypt and what the Old Testament was all about. They failed to see that all of creation, not to mention all men, were subjected to the curse because of their sin of their father Adam. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And as Jesus taught in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. As the saying goes, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As adopted sons of God, we are to recognize that the history of Israel is our own history, and we are to receive instruction from it. The lessons they learned are lessons we need to learn ourselves, lest we too, like the Jews of Jesus' day, fail to see that apart from the freedom that Christ has won for us, we too would be enslaved in our sin. God had made a covenant with Abraham not because of anything he had done, but because God graciously chose him as a father of a multitude that would one day be a blessing to all nations. God promised to make Abraham exceedingly fruitful and to give his offspring after him in the land of his sojournings. To humanize, this promise began small, with the birth of a single son, Isaac, in Abraham's old age. Isaac seemed to be off to a better start than his father, having two sons, Esau and Jacob. But even then, the two brothers could scarcely live together. And Jacob fled his family when his brother Esau sought to kill him over the covenant blessing that Jacob had sovereignly received but through trickery. But God continued to bless the seed of Abraham, even while in a foreign land. Jacob had 12 sons, a six-fold multiplication of his father's two-fold blessing. God's blessings were, at least physically, for Abraham's seed, was multiplying. But at every turn, these sons fell into sin, and they were still nomadic, sojourning in a land that was not their own. 
and they were often threatened by famine and war. With Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, God's covenant promises seem to finally be bearing the kind of fruit that one might expect from the sovereign creator of the universe. Joseph's story begins well, with Joseph finding the favor of his father, but this led to the displeasure of his brothers, who sought to kill him, but ended up selling him into slavery, in Egypt no less, where after obediently persevering through great trials, he was exalted to the right hand of the most powerful man in the world. Jacob brought his entire family into Egypt, protected from the famine that ravaged the whole region. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph prophesies to his people, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he added, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. At the end of Genesis, we see the beginning of God's covenant promises being fulfilled. In Genesis 46:27, we're told all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This number 70 is a highly symbolic number in the Bible. In Genesis 10, there are 70 nations named in the table of the nations. This number 70 is symbolically connected with nationhood. It indicates that God is about to create a new nation out of his family of 70. But they were far from being a nation of their own, numerically or geographically, for they were sojourners in Egypt. But God's covenant purposes were still being worked out. Their sojournings in Egypt had not thwarted them. In fact, at the end of Genesis, we see that their sojournings in Egypt, in fact, had saved them. That brings us to the book of Exodus, with the people of still people of Israel still in Egypt. There are three main sections to this chapter. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see the people of Israel beginning to fulfill God's creation mandate to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Second, in verses 8 to 14, there is a new king that opposes and enslaves Israel. And finally, in verses 15 to 22, we see the confrontation between the king of Egypt and two midwives. So let's turn to our text this morning, the first chapter of Exodus. It begins with an introduction as a reminder of the humble origins of the people of Israel. For while the people of Israel were a vast multitude at this point, it had not always been so. In fact, it hadn't been that long ago when the number was only 70, when they had entered the land of Egypt. The number 70 is again repeated here to foreshadow that God had promised to make Israel a nation, as the 70 nations of the world were named in Genesis 10. The language of the verse, of verse 7, echoes the dominion mandate that God had given to Adam and Eve and again to Noah. In Genesis 1.28, God had said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. God later tells Noah something very similar. He says, and you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And he promised these things to Abraham as part of his covenant blessings. The people of Israel were beginning to fulfill what God had commanded after he had created them and what he had promised to Abraham. Studying the chronology of Genesis and Exodus leads us to believe that the book of Exodus begins between 80 to 144 years after Joseph had died. The sons of Jacob had sons in Egypt and their grandsons would have children there as well. A brief discussion of the chronology of the sojourn is necessary, particularly at this point, 
because it is easy to misunderstand what Exodus 12.40 means when it says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. The ESV translation, like most modern translations, is slightly misleading here. The King James Version reads, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. The difference between the two may seem slight, but the King James Version separates the length of time from the land where the people had dwelt. This is important because in Genesis 15:16, God had promised Abraham that his offspring would return to Canaan in the fourth generation, which is shown to be fulfilled in Exodus 6 and Numbers 3. Additionally, in Galatians 3:16 and 17, Paul states that the law came 430 years after God had made promises to Abraham. This means that the timer for 430 years began with God's covenant with Abraham. So Israel sojourned for 430 years, but was not enslaved under Pharaoh for that entire time. They were afflicted, as Genesis 15:13 states, but not as Pharaoh's slaves for all those years. Recall how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all consigned to sojourn in a foreign land, how famine and war threatened them. Jacob had told Pharaoh in Genesis 47:9, few and evil have been the days of my life. The patriarchs had been afflicted, even amidst much blessing. The time of enslavement was approximately 215 years. Sorting out these details is important because we must let Scripture interpret Scripture and not allow seeming contradictions to take root and undermine the doctrine of Scripture. The math of these generations is fascinating. If each of these 70 persons had 12 children as Jacob had, on through the fifth generation, there would have been over 1.4 million descendants of Jacob. In Exodus 12.37, we're told that more than 600,000 males left in the Exodus. When the text tells us the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, it is not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. It It is not like the proverbial fish tale, where every time you tell the tale, the fish gets a little bit bigger. This kind of blessing could only come through God's covenant blessing. This extraordinary population growth stood out to their neighboring Egyptians. It was this that made them fear the Israelites. Isn't it interesting to consider how our culture today also fears large, fruitful families? Children are a blessing, and marital fruitfulness is something to desire and pursue. Yet it is perceived as a threat to the worldly order. And this should be a good lesson for all all of us. Covenantal fruitfulness is one of the means that God has ordained to take dominion over his created world. We should not be surprised when the world recognizes the threatening nature of God's weapons. But notice, this is a weapon that the world does not want to use. Quite the opposite. To the world, death is the greatest of weapons. We see evidence of this in the response of the king of Egypt. In addition to the the 70 children of the 12 patriarchs, there would have likely been many servants and attendants that had traveled into Egypt with them. Abraham had 318 fighting men in Genesis 14. Jacob and his sons would have almost certainly had similar retinues with them. Additionally, there were almost certainly converts and those that had married into the people of Israel. Joseph himself had married an Egyptian. To leave Egypt with 600,000 adult men Egyptian converts likely factored into that total. But the text doesn't tell us these things. 
because this was a work of God. We should be awed by God's fulfillment of his promise, by the incredible fruitfulness of the people of Israel. God is not stingy and begrudging in fulfilling his word. 600,000 is mentioned, as I said, in Exodus 12, but no number is given here. Rather, the text emphasizes the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is creational language. The people were fulfilling the creation mandate. This connection to the creation of man sets the stage for a reenactment of the scene in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent sought to overthrow man. Wherein the serpent, the woman, and the man were all cursed. This is exactly what we see in Exodus. This brings us to the second main section of the chapter. Immediately after the people of Israel begin to fulfill the dominion mandate through covenant blessing, they face satanic opposition. Remember the curse God put upon the serpent in Genesis 3? God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And to the man he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In Exodus chapter 1, we see the rise of the king of Egypt playing the role of the offspring of the serpent, subjugating men and furthering the pain women suffer in childbirth by killing their offspring. God's children are again bearing the curse, this time under the rule of the seed of the serpent. The serpent has aspired to godlike authority and is waging war upon God by attacking his children. This new king that arose over Egypt did not know Joseph. As I said earlier, this is probably 80 to 144 years after Joseph died. Though he probably never met Joseph, he surely had heard stories of him and was familiar with how he had saved Egypt and enriched the Pharaoh through the famine. What Moses seems to mean here is that the new king had no loyalty to Joseph's memory, no honor for what Joseph had done or for his people. Instead, he saw the Israelites as rivals, outsiders who had not remained loyal to Egypt in the time of war. The Israelites had originally settled in the land of Goshen, and the text points to their remaining together, forming a rival ethnic power within the nation of Egypt. This new king of Egypt recognized that the people of Israel had been greatly blessed. He saw with his eyes that they were too many and too mighty. But rather than inquire as to why and how they had been blessed, rather than inquire of the people what could account for the blessing, he chose to view them as potential rivals. Rather than see the potential for mutual blessing, he sought to harness and suppress that blessing for his own purposes. Something similar had happened in Israelite history when Laban abused Jacob. Laban acknowledged that he had been blessed by the Lord because of his son-in-law Jacob. But rather rather than deal justly with him, like Pharaoh, he dealt shrewdly and tricked him many ways into staying under his service rather than returning to Canaan with his own wealth. God had set this example down for the enslaved Israelites to be encouraged and to trust 
that God would vindicate them. Moses' account of their enslavement leaves some questions for the modern-day reader. How could this vast multitude, presumably living together in one region, be enslaved so easily by a nation fearing their size? In Psalm 105.24, we learn that the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Did they resist the enslavement? Was this enslavement accomplished through the slow encroachment upon their liberties, as we say today, slowly boiling a frog? The text is silent regarding these questions, though the memory of their enslavement would have surely been passed down through oral tradition. The point is, they were enslaved. The Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Their enslavement was accomplished. They built for Pharaoh store cities. The seed of the serpent was exercising his authority to enslave and subjugate the sons of God under the curse that God had pronounced upon them. Yet what the king of Egypt meant for evil, God meant for good. What we must recognize is that God was at work to build and enrich the people of Israel and prepare them for nationhood. He was using means, oppression, slavery, and tribulation to accomplish his purposes. This is not the formula that any of us would use for this goal. But God's ways are not our ways. God was preparing his children for the responsibility of nationhood and independence while teaching them to trust his providence. God is preparing us today for much more than nationhood and political independence. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? God is calling us to a much more difficult and weighty calling. We have been entrusted with all authority in heaven and on earth. We are commanded to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. We are God's plan to subdue his creation, empowered by the Spirit of God to do his kingdom work. We are the plan. We cannot be silent. We must speak God's words. We must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are God's witnesses to the world that he reigns and that all must bend their knees to Christ. We must not shy away from this command or leave the task to missionaries in foreign lands. Our own nation and our own state desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something remarkable happens through the Egyptians' oppression of the Israelites. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God was accomplishing his purposes through the oppression of this people. It was not in spite of, but because of it. We see the same kind of response in Acts 6. We see the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Immediately after this, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, launching a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem in Acts 8. The church responds by scattering and preaching the word. The disciples of Jesus then began their mission outside of Jerusalem, and the world has not been the same since, with the gospel going forth to all nations. The Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites because of the fear of them fell into greater fear as they multiplied all the more. They were then in dread of the people of Israel. 
But instead of recognizing that they'd made matters worse, they doubled down in the hardness of their hearts. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Moses emphasizes this by adding, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Is this not a perfect picture of the nature of man? When the results of our sinful actions do not result in our desired outcome, we sin harder. When you are angry at those closest to you, how many of you make matters worse by losing your temper, shouting, scolding, nagging, rather than humbly seeking peaceful reconciliation? In this final section of chapter 1, we see the confrontation between the king of Egypt and two Hebrew midwives. This is an example of what God had said in Genesis 3 when he said that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between, between his offspring and hers. The serpent king is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. This theme is throughout scripture. Cain had allied himself with the serpent by killing the godly seed, his brother Abel. God hated Esau, again, the seed of the serpent who had sought to kill his godly brother Jacob. This theme culminates with King Herod, who is explicitly connected to Egypt in Matthew 2.15. When Herod recognizes the political threat that Jesus would be to his own power, he sought to destroy him. And later, the Pharisees, whom Jesus calls the sons of the devil, succeeded in crucifying Jesus. The king of Egypt, as the serpent in the garden had done, approaches the woman to overthrow his enemy. The king of Egypt enlisted the Hebrew midwives into his murderous scheme to kill the sons of Israelite women. It is here that we find two unlikely heroes, two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua, who feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They feared God more than the serpent king who was seeking the destruction of God's covenant people. You may be thinking, why kill only the sons and not the daughters? But recall that the king's primary fear mentioned in verse 10 concerns war. In his judgment, it was the sons that would be a military threat to Egypt. The king of Egypt feared the strength of Israelite men. And in a sense, he was right. Later in Exodus, we will see that Moses became that threat. But that isn't really the point of this chapter. One commentator rightly notes the irony that Pharaoh is worried about the males, but it is the women that are the real threat. Unlike Eve, in the Garden of Eden, the two midwives rejected the word of the serpent king because they feared God. They were not deceived by the serpent as Eve had been, but rather they deceived the serpent. When God cursed the serpent, he said that the seed of the woman would bruise his head while the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. This meant that the serpent would be defeated, while the seed of the woman would only be wounded. The serpent could not accomplish his desire to destroy the seed of the woman. He would battle in futility. God is the creator, and this is his world. His purposes cannot be thwarted. He is the one who spoke into the darkness, let there be light, and there was light. As John writes in his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. God rules this world. Despite all that Satan has done and will do, he will always be defeated. Now, this is not to say that the Israelites were not suffering. They absolutely were. They were afflicted with heavy burdens. 
They were oppressed. They were forced to work as slaves. Their lives were made bitter with hard service and in all kinds of work in the field. They were treated ruthlessly. They were threatened with the murder of their sons. This was a crucible of suffering, unrelenting suffering, day in and day out. The king of Egypt did call the two midwives to account, having realized they'd not done what he'd instructed them to do. The text doesn't give us a timeline here, but this is presumably a year or two later after it was impossible to hide one or two-year-old baby boys running around the land of Goshen. These two midwives, when challenged by Pharaoh, offer an answer that, though Pharaoh accepted, seems a bit disingenuous. That is to say, it wasn't entirely sincere or entirely truthful. Much has been written of their answer to Pharaoh, as with Rahab's deception of the king of Jericho concerning the spies she protected. Again, in that story, a woman protects the godly seed from the serpent king in Jericho. Nowhere does the Bible condemn the midwives or Rahab for deceiving the serpent kings. Rather, both are commended for fearing the Lord. And that is what we must focus upon. The two midwives feared God more than the earthly serpent king who sought to murder the godly seed of the woman. We too must fear the Lord more than earthly authority. As Peter and the apostles said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. This is not to say we should be casual about speaking the truth. Far from it. God hates a lying tongue. And we are also commanded to not bear false witness against our neighbor. But it does mean that we must prioritize the fear of the Lord and not neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. I commend to you Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Do that, and like the midwives, work to protect innocent life with a clear conscience. God blesses the faithful midwives because they feared God and acted like it. In fact, he gave them the very thing that Pharaoh sought to prevent, families. This word treated, uh, translated as families is much more than simply a husband, wife, and children. It is the same word translated elsewhere as a house. In this way, house is meant to speak of a family lineage, as the house of Israel, house of Levi, or the house of David. It is genealogical, not merely an immediate family. Family, a house, a legacy, is one of God's great gifts to men. He bestowed this great blessing on those two Hebrew midwives because they feared God. And so I encourage you to think this way because this is how God thinks. God had promised to make a house for David, with the very Son of God being the fulfillment of that promise. Before God created the world, he prepared an inheritance that he would one day bestow upon his own son. Not only this, but there is a spiritual heritage that we can pass on as well. As God gives his spirit and life, not according to the flesh, but according to his good pleasure. Paul addresses Timothy as my true child in the faith in 1 Timothy 1. And Deborah was called a mother in Israel in Judges 5. I urge you to give thought to the legacy you will leave behind after you. What will you leave behind? A legacy is not something we can build on our own or leave on our own terms. The only good that will continue past our lives is that which receives God's blessing. 
As we see from these midwives, it is the fear of God and walking in obedience before him that will result in a godly legacy. The obedient midwives not only received their own reward, but their obedience also spared many Israelite sons. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh's edict then became, became even more grotesque. He commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The Egyptians were given legal license by their king to throw Hebrew boys into the river to drown. Rulers throughout history have sought to give legal sanction, that is, legal protection, to wickedness. In our own nation, we see this kind of thing everywhere. As abortion centers in neighboring states were closing due to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, they moved their operations to Minnesota, where they were able to commit their vile acts of murder under the protection of law. Much evil has been sanctioned and protected by our state government in this last legislative session. But in Psalm 94.20, God names rulers who frame injustice by statute as wicked rulers. As Christians, we must recognize this, for God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This does not change the fact that they are still our rulers, but we must call evil evil. We must, like the midwives, fear God and not men. This chapter concludes with the awful command from the serpent king. Most of us know well what is next. But the Israelites at this time did not have the fortune of knowing that. They had to walk by faith and not sight. They had to recognize how God was at work by blessing and multiplying the seed of Abraham, even in the face of powerful opposition. They had to recognize how God had protected and blessed the midwives for fearing God, not the king of Egypt. They had to remember the promises that God had made to Abraham. God had told him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They had to look back to their family stories, meant to remind them that God makes promises and keeps them. We have far more today. We have the full scriptures in which God has fulfilled all his promises. We see how Jesus, the anointed son of God, was born of a virgin, a child of the house of David, lived a sinless life, fulfilling all that Israel had failed to do, died upon a Roman cross at the insistence of his own religious leaders, rose from the grave on the third day, was witnessed by hundreds in his resurrection body, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. He now sits at the right hand of God where he awaits that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Yet we too must look back to our family stories, the redemptive stories of God that are meant to remind us that God makes promises and he keeps them. The seed of the serpent still wars against the seed of the woman. The offspring of the serpent seeks to groom us and our offspring into their perverse idolatry, offering what they call freedom, but what God calls slavery. They seek the destruction of the godly seed, claiming God's children as their own. We are in a spiritual war, as the children of God have always been, 
and as the Israelites in Egypt were. God's call upon us is still the same today as it was then. Fear God and walk in his ways. Live by faith, knowing that one day we will walk by sight. The victory has already been won, for that is the meaning of the resurrection. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Grace Church, let's be a people that remembers God's redemptive history, seeing our own place in it. We worship the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. We have been grafted into their family tree. Their history is our history. The Jews of Jesus' day, as we've been learning in the Gospel of John, were broken off of the family tree because they had forgotten their own history and rejected the Son of God, who had come to offer freedom they believed they already possessed. God is preparing a new people for more than nationhood by perfecting us by his love, sanctifying us by his spirit, instructing us in wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, that we may be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We are being prepared for immortality with the King of Kings. So do not faint in the day of adversity, but rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. May God hasten the day of his return, but until then, may he preserve his saints and his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven.